Well, if you would have a seat, good morning um, and happy BCS Marathon Day. You guys are the survivors. You made it through the traffic. Congratulations. Um, if you do not know me, my name is Thomas, and uh, man, it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. But before we do that, I want to talk about stress, everyone's favorite topic, right? I want you just to picture one of the more stressful moments in your life. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're just coming out of that. And, you know, Christmas break is around the corner. Maybe finals, the hard ones are over. Or maybe you're just about to tackle the most difficult final of your life. But for me, it happened when I was in seminary, one of the most stressful moments of my life. I, for the first time, I had just moved to Dallas. So new city, I had started a new job, new church. Um, and, and so everything was new and I was overwhelmed. I was taking uh, master's level courses for the first time in my life. Um, and, and on top of that, I was working at a church. I was the junior high minister and, and it was a lot to manage. And we had a weekend event that we were prepare, preparing for, kind of like a Disciple Now weekend. And, and, and we were preparing, I was at the church all hours, it felt like, you know, we were prepping and painting and getting ready games and getting ready teaching and all these different things. And my Greek professor decided to plan a test on the Friday before the retreat. And there's a phrase when something is difficult, you say, it is all Greek to me. Literally, it's all Greek to me in this moment. And I'm trying to learn a new language. I'm trying to learn the difference between all these different characters. And I am stressed out of my mind. How am I supposed to lead this weekend, work, 80 hours this week on top of finishing all of my coursework and somehow slip in a Greek test on top of all of it. I was stressed. I was worn out. And my friend came up to me and was like, well, why don't you just talk to your professor? And I was like, he's not a human being. He's a robot. Like, what? And I came out of engineering at A&M, and so professors just like, they did zero grace, right? You just, you turn it in, uh, that's what you do. Uh, but seminary professors, I found out, can work a little bit differently. They love when you work at churches. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to ask. And he said, yes, you can actually delay when you take your test. You can take it the following weekend, um, which in hindsight doesn't sound like a lot of grace. But to have it not be on that weekend, I just remember it was just this relief moment of, man, thank you. I can just get this one thing done and now I have this whole week to study and I can get all this done. It was like this pressure relief moment where all the stress I had was able to be released and just like, okay, I can actually get through this. Now I tell you that because where we are in the book of Romans is a stressful moment, right? When, when, when you look at the background of the book of Romans, there is all sorts of things happening. There is divisions that, that potentially could fracture the church between Gentiles and Jews. So there's conflict there. What does it look like to be a Christian in this moment? And on top of that, there is persecution pouring into the church in new ways. They have relatives maybe that have disowned them for abandoning Judaism. They have relatives who are saying, why are you uh, calling for another king other than Caesar? And there is pressure mounting and stress building. 
And where we are in the book of Romans, Paul is going to outline God's ministry to us in the midst of suffering and pressure, in the midst of hardship. What is God doing? Because all of us have those stressful moments. And I use something that's perhaps lighthearted in school and just balancing life in that way. But many of us, even in this moment, yeah, we're singing joy to the world or O come, O come, Emmanuel. But in reality, we are stressed and broken. We are unsure about the future of our job. We are unsure about what's going to happen in our family. There's conflict that has created division. Or maybe there's just a diagnosis that's been given. And you don't know how to handle it. You're having to take care of your parents in a new way. And stress is mounting up. Now what I think is exciting about this morning is Paul is not just going to give us theology. He's not just going to say, here's some truths to remember. He is going to actually outline God's ministry to us as believers. Do you realize that? Like, God is active in the midst of our suffering. And Paul says, where I want you guys to turn is to realize what God is doing at every moment for you as you suffer, as you experience hardship, as you experience question. And there's three things that I think he wants us to take away today. And these are my three points this morning. So again, what does God provide for us in the midst of our suffering? First, the Spirit speaks for us. Second, the Father makes good plans for us. And third, the Son secures our glory. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 8, and we are actually going to start in verse 26. In my first point, the Spirit speaks for us. Read with me in verse 26. Paul writes, he says, In the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts and he knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I wanna pause right there. Again, I talked about the immense suffering that was taking place. The immense just hardship that was going on in the early church. And Paul pauses and he says, hey, I want you to know one thing. God is aware of your weakness. He is aware of what's happening. And he even points out, he says, in our weakness, the Spirit is helping us. The Spirit of the living God is confronting and meeting us in our weakness. In what ways are we weak? He points out, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Have you ever had those moments where you're like, just things are falling apart or there's stress and all you can get out is, God help, right? Like, God, just do something. Like, just, I don't even know what to pray. Paul is talking about that moment. And he says, the Spirit meets us even when we do not know how to pray. 
but it's remarkable because what does this actually mean? How does the Spirit help us? Look at verse 26. It says this, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now that is a groundbreaking reality. Paul says in the midst of our suffering and weakness, when hardship is mounting, the Spirit goes to work on behalf of believers. He's interceding for us. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit somehow takes our inadequate prayers or even non-existent prayers or incomplete prayers and he goes before the Father and he translates exactly what we need and he speaks to God the Father on our behalf. In the spiritual world, there's a conversation between the Spirit of God and the Father about you, about what you need, about the awareness of your weaknesses. And he's praying to the Father on your behalf. That is incredible. Um, right now, it's high, it's high time for Christmas, right? We're like, what, 15 days away? Um, it's coming fast, um, right? The jingle bells are jingling. Like, we're going forward. Um, and one of the things that changes, um, we, we've, me, me and my wife, we, we love our, our postman, the guy who brings the mail to our house, um, every single day. And during this season, he actually comes twice a day, like once at like 7 a.m. and he's dropping off packages or whatever, and then once in the afternoon, and he's just working. And, and, and you know, we we've just love, the, his name is Demarius. We just love him. And, and like, we'll like be pulling muffins out of the, like the oven, and we're like, do you want one? Like, you, you're working hard for us on our, on our behalf. But what's amazing, like, we do not have to even leave our home. We just write a letter, address it, put it in the mailbox, he takes it, right? And he goes, and he takes it to wherever it's supposed to go. And even, my, I, my family's all over the United States. I have a sister in Montana, and I have a brother in Chicago, and scattered across Texas. And so, um, man, we have letters and postcards or whatever going across the world, going across the U.S., and we never even have to leave our home. And I just think of that picture of like the Spirit's ministry for us who takes us in our brokenness, takes what we bring to the table, our incompleteness, and he says, I will take what is needed to the Father on your behalf. Like I will bring it before him and I will speak to the Father on your behalf so that you receive exactly what you need. Now, even in that example, I have to write the letter and sign it and put a stamp on it and, you know, all that stuff. And if you're under the age of, like, 20, you're like, what? Like, stamps and cursive? Like, no. But, uh, but in the picture that Paul is outlining here, he says, we don't even know how, what to say. The Spirit delivers the message on our behalf and writes it on our behalf. That is an incredible ministry. I remember, I mean, even just rewinding a few years ago in the throes of COVID, right, when everything is uncertain, and even in the midst of that, all of us had COVID going on and trying to figure out what's going on in the world. All of us had layers of stress. And I know for me, the past three years have been some of the most stressful and anxiety-inducing years I've ever experienced. 
because on top of COVID and all the stresses there and the navigating and the reacting and reading the news and all that stuff, on top of that, me and my wife were experiencing infertility and having to navigate that. My father passed away unexpectedly at the age of 66. And so we had to orchestrate a funeral in the midst of that. My relationship with my family was changing. You know, I'm now, my mom's by herself and I'm having to take care. And like all of that stress mounting up and figuring out, okay, what does the new reality look like? And as I meditate on this passage, even this week, in the midst of that, even if all I can get out is, Lord, help, I don't know what to do. What does this look like? The Spirit is interceding and speaking to the Father on my behalf. Think about that. The Spirit knows what you need, and he brings it before the Father. But how? What does he say? Look look at how it's described at the end of verse 26. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, a lot of uh, theologians maybe have mistakenly have used this to be like, okay, there's like an unknown spiritual language. He's talking about tongues here. And like when we speak in tongues, I actually don't think that's what this passage is referencing at all. Because this word that's used here for groanings is this word that indicates passion and, and vigor and vitality. Like he is passionately speaking on your behalf. He is someone who is excited to speak to the Father. And even what you cannot say, he says. And things you don't even know about, he knows about. And he's speaking. He is passionately, eagerly, he is compassionately speaking to the Father on your behalf. And look what it says in verse 27. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's like that character in a movie that says the right thing at the exact right time. The Spirit speaks exactly in line with the will of God. And he says, this is exactly what you need. Isn't that beautiful? The Spirit speaks for us. But he isn't, the Spirit's not just speaking The Father is also creating good for us. Keep reading with me in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want to stop there. My second point is this. The Father is creating good for us, right? And this passage, despite popular belief, is not just uh, something about uh, a football team coming back in the fourth quarter, okay? Right, it's like all things, man, like we missed that field goal, but yeah. Like, this is a passage about the Father's character. Now, 
I just want to reread the promise here. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good uh, of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Who is this promise for? Right? Who is the promise being made for? He gives a couple descriptions. It's those who love God. It's those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, etc. So a lot of times when we read this at face value, it's like, okay, so those who love God, so like if I show enough love to God, then like he's like on my team and he's, he wants what's good for me. I don't think that's what it's trying to say. I think it's clarified by this, pa- this verse here that says, those who have been called according to his purpose. What he is saying is, this is true for every believer. Because all believers have been called according to the purpose of God. We've had that moment where we receive the gift of God and we join with God in what he is doing in this world. And so it's a phrase to indicate this is a promise that is made for all believers. So if you are a believer, you have given your life to Jesus, you can underline this verse and say the Father is creating good for me. He's creating good for me. Now, typically, this can, be, uh, this can be misconstrued. What is actually the promise being made here? Because a lot of times we read it and we think like, okay, like all things are just going to work out in the end, right? Like I might lose my job, but that's just because there's another higher paying job waiting around the corner, right? Or, yeah, she broke up with me, but that's because there's someone else that God knows and she's going to complete me, like, right? We're like puzzle pieces and it's going to work, like, We think of this in terms of like, man, God's got something better for me in this life. Right? There's a whole show kind of like revolving around this idea. It's not necessarily that popular show, but it's Manifest. If any of you guys saw that on like Netflix or whatever. But it's like, literally, it's like called Flight 828, which is a reference to this passage. You know, and and, uh, they talk about, they're like, all things, man. So it's like, no matter what is happening, they're like, there's a plan. Like, it's all going to end up good for us. The only problem with that interpretation is there are too many examples of godly, holy, righteous people who never receive vindication in this life. Marquee example, John the Baptist, who Jesus himself said, there's no other man like him. He is is one of the greatest people that have ever existed. And he lives out in the wilderness and faithfully follows the Lord. As John the Baptist is presented in the New Testament, he's almost presented as more righteous and holy than any other disciple. Like there's just this commitment level in there. And he was not perfect, but man, he is a holy and righteous person. And do you remember the scene when he is in prison? And he's like, God, okay, like Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. And as I read through the Old Testament, it says you're going to set the captives free. Uh, Look at me right here. I'm in jail right now. And Jesus says to him, not, hey, all things, man, just like hang in here. Like there's a bigger jail cell on the corner with a window. Like it's coming. No, he says, I am the Messiah. But I will not set you free from jail. And if you keep reading through the story, John is beheaded and killed. This is one of the low points in Jesus' ministry. You see him instantly withdraw. He is devastated at what has happened. Or maybe a better example is Jesus himself. More holy and righteous than John the Baptist. Perfect and flawless. 
and yet died a gruesome death on the cross. This passage is not a promise that things will just work out in this life and you will get that job and you will find that person if you just remain faithful because God just has, he's got this like, he just wants to teach you something in the meantime. But if you just hold on enough in this life, you will receive some good things because there's too many examples of righteous people dying tragically in scripture. This has even led some people to say hurtful things in the face of tragedy, right? Hey, God's going to use this, right? God's going to take your, you know, he's got a plan for your miscarriage. Or he's going to teach you something through your dad's death. And I remember people saying things like that. And it's just like, why are you trying to make this horrible instance into something that's good? God does not call what is evil good. God hates death. He hates brokenness and he hates sin. In fact, he's giving everything to undo brokenness. Sin and death are not a part of God's plan. His plan was perfection. We chose sin. And brokenness is the result. What is this actually saying then? While God is the master of redemption, and there are stories we can point to where things work out in the end. Look at Joseph, um, right? Old Testament Joseph, where he becomes the second hand to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. There are examples of God working things out, but this is more a promise about God's character towards you and the eternity that is waiting and the good that he wills for your life. Why does that matter? Man, if, if I'm not going to get something good, like right now, like why, why does it matter that God's character is good? I want you to think about like a group project for a second. Okay, something difficult. I remember for me, I studied mechanical engineering, and they would just get, like, surprise you. Like, here's a project, and, and you need a design, and you need a, you know, here's MATLAB, and here's a Mars rover. You just simulate it, go. Like, and, and you're like, what are you even talking about? Like, how am I going to do this? And one of my good friends, he was just smart. His name was Tim. And he was just one of those guys that just math, he would just like dream in math. And he would just, he just thought about math all the time. And he's like, hey, I was just doing math for fun the other day. And he's like, it's just beautiful, isn't it? And I'm like, I don't know what you, who are you? And he just loved, like it just made sense to him. And so when they're assigning teams, me and Tim got put on the same team. And instantly it's like, I am so glad that my future is tied to Tim, right? Like, because he, like, eats math for breakfast. Like, and that's, um, like, his will is, I know it's going to be for, like, our team to succeed. And since I am attached to him, I will succeed in this class. And when, when God says, I will and I plan and I work all things for the good of you, we, it is a statement about God's character. And as believers, we have been attached to our Father in heaven who wants our good. And while there's no promise for full deliverance in this life, we know that he wills our good. We know that he will hold us secure and be present with us. He's not gonna be cruel towards us. And even in this life, if we don't experience it in full, 
eternity will be good with him. He actually defines what good is in a few words here. Look at verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This is the first thing I think that I want to outline about what does it mean? Like, what does it mean that he wants our good? He wants to conform us to the image of Jesus. That's part of his desire for good for us. He wants to conform us and make us more like Jesus, which is not to say make you less like Thomas and more like Jesus, but to say, how do I form Thomas to match the character of Christ and to be everything he was created to be? How do I make him more like who Thomas is supposed to be? I want to conform you to unlock your, your full character in this world to be steadfast and sure, to be someone who's patient and full of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what I want to do in you. God says, that's what I want to do. But keep reading. It says, so that, this is verse 29, he would be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. I love that because it's this family language. He says, part of me wanting good for you is I want you to be a part of the family of God. And you're going to be joined to the family of God forever. Jesus was the firstborn. He's the one who was able to, to break through death. It couldn't hold him back. And because he did that, there is now a family of God that can exist that includes you. His good means we're a part of his family. And perhaps best of all, look at verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you're an English major, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> glorified is in the past tense right here. It's like he has already glorified. If we look around, the believers in, in Rome, they were not special. They hadn't already been glorified like super Christians, like floating around, punching evil in the face. Like they were not, you know, already glorified. And we are not either. But Paul says, I want to say this with so much certainty. You will be glorified someday. You have been justified by Christ and you will be glorified. In fact, I'm so certain that you will be glorified. You will be given a new body. All brokenness will be redeemed in you. I'm, gonna, I'm so certain that that will happen that I'm going to say it's already happened. You have been glorified. It is secure right now. Our future with God is secure forever. He's creating good for us. So again, pause, think back to your stressful moments. You have a father in heaven who desires your good. He's not being cruel to you. He's not just throwing things at you to see what you do and like, oh, watch, watch him squirm a little bit. No, God hates what is evil. He hates death. He hates the wickedness that exists in the world. But he is good promises to be with us, to hold us secure in all things. Let that just comfort you and wash over you. He is making plans on your behalf. 
in conjunction with the Spirit of God. They are speaking your name and saying, man, this is what we want to see happen in your life. I want your good. But my last point is this. The Son has secured glory for us. Now, this is perhaps what we're about to read is the most famous passage from the book of Romans. Many of you have heard of it before, but let's just read it together. Starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who has loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I could end the sermon there, and we would all be blessed. But I do want to point out, what is Paul trying to say And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but he's talked about the Spirit's ministry. He's talked about the Father's character towards us and is good for us. And now he's going to talk about what the Son has secured for us, which is glory. And he starts off by asking five rhetorical questions. And I actually have them up here on the slide because I just want to show you. He's asking these rhetorical questions, and then he kind of counters it with a truth about who God is. So the first one is, who can possibly be against us? Right? What army, what, what, what force in this world can take us down from the outside? Because he says, God is for us. Isn't that incredible? God is for us as believers. How will God not give freely all things? He counters and he says, He did not even spare his own son, his beloved, but delivered him over for us all. And it's this statement about if he gave up Jesus, his most beloved son, right? Like he will give freely all things to us. I love what the book of James in chapter one says that God is the father of lights and every good gift comes from him. There is no shadow because he's changing or crafty but he is the giver of all good things. This is actually a refrain that Jesus hit constantly in his ministry. If you know how to give good gifts, think about your heavenly father. He gives us all things. Who will be able to bring a charge against us? Now, I think this is especially relevant to us, right? Because in our just culture where we live in College Station, Bryan, so many of us, 
as I, you know, I'm a youth pastor. I've been doing this for about 10 years now. The biggest thing that I think blocks people in their walk with the Lord is guilt. It's, 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 man, but there's this thing that, that God's going to hold against me, right? Or there's this charge that's going to be brought against me. And I know many of us walk with that burden, right? Like, it's like there's just, I can't, yeah, he paid it all, but I just can't get over this thing that I did. I ruined my marriage. I, I ruined my relationship with my kids. I ruined whatever. And, and we are floored with guilt and shame. And he says, man, I get that Jesus can pay it all, but there's too many charges brought against me. And he says, God is the one who justifies. He said, God's, he's the one in the courtroom. He, he is the one presiding over this whole thing. And he, in Christ, desires your good. Who will condemn us? Can Satan condemn or bring a charge? Look what he says. Christ Jesus intercedes for us. And if you're counting the number, there's two members of the Trinity now interceding on your behalf. Well, I think Jesus is interceding in a perhaps different way here, although similar in many ways. I want you to picture a courtroom. Who brings a charge or who condemns you? Well, Satan wants to condemn you. And Satan will say, man, this person, look what they've done. Here's the track record. They deserve death. And yet Jesus is in the courtroom interceding, saying, no, that person, he's with me. He's been washed. She's been purified from all unrighteousness because of my work on the cross. He says, Jesus intercedes. Jesus speaks up on our behalf before God when any charge is brought against us. And he silences the accuser. That is beautiful. And fifth, and perhaps the biggest question that Paul asked here, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists off all these different things. I don't necessarily need to list them all off, but he talks about tribulation. Will, will persecution or distress, all these different things. And he says, he actually quotes Psalms here. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. He's doing this, I think, to say, man, persecution, yeah, that's expected. The prophets talked about that. You should expect that to come. Something hasn't, you know, your, your spirituality isn't broken if persecution's coming your way or hardship's coming your way. He's like, the, psalm, the psalmist wrote about it. You should expect it. But in all these things, we are conquerors through him who has loved us. We're not conquerors because we're super awesome. Okay, and there's that, I don't know what version of the Bible you have. It's not, we're not conquerors because, man, you have like, you've like walked with the Lord for a really long time and like you've mastered morning prayer and like you've mastered these things. And so you can withstand, no, it's because of him who has loved us. Full stop. Jesus is the one who holds us secure. And he goes through this list of things at the end. Will death separate us? No, the deterioration of your body will not separate you. Will life, anything that happens to you or anything you do, will that separate you? No. Angels, even the most powerful spiritual forces cannot separate you from the love of Jesus. Or principalities, right? The rulers of this world, things present, 
whatever comes our way in society, whatever things that we participate in, or things to come, things that will happen to us in the future, nor powers, no height, nor depth, which is to say, is there any place we can go where the love of God cannot get to us? No. Or any other created thing, which God has created all things. Paul's answer is nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Now it's easy, you know, because many of us have, have memorized this passage or whatever, and it's just to, we've, we fail to be floored by the love of Jesus for us. But maybe this morning we just need to be renewed in that. We need to be reminded nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Many of us as believers, maybe we came to faith, but whatever's happened to us, maybe we've fallen off the tracks a little bit and we think, does God still love me? Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Or whatever hardship has come your way, man, has God forgotten about me? Look what's happening to me over and over and over again. Why does it seem that so many horrible things are happening to me? Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. I want you to picture the victory formation at an A&M football game, which I know is hard sometimes, right? It's like, what? Uh, but it's the kneel down. I want you to think about that moment, right? There's this moment in every football game, usually, unless it's like, I mean, but when it's a blowout or whatever, and, and the ball is turned over for the last time, and the, the offense has the ball. And yeah, there's still time on the clock, and all they have to do is just kneel the ball down, and the clock's running out. That, when I think about the moment in history we live in, it's kind of that moment right now, right? It's like Jesus has won. Yeah, there's still some time on the clock. And it's like, okay, has sin and death been defeated already? No, there's still some effects and things like that. But the game has been won. We're just kneeling the ball at this point. That is the moment in time we live in. Because God loves us. God has secured us. Jesus himself, his work on the cross has secured our future glory, has secured the love of God to our life in a way that can never be undone. And I love what Paul writes in the book of Romans right before this. He says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The love of Christ as believers, we can never be separated from it. So to conclude, I just want to recap. The Spirit speaks to the Father on our behalf. The Father creates good for us and the Son secures us. So there's two applications I want to give to you guys. The first one is for believers in the room. Right? Simply meditate on these truths. If you've taken notes, just meditate on that. See the love of Christ towards you. See the goodness of God towards you. See the comfort of the Spirit towards you. Even as we read through the Advent stories, as you're doing your devotionals, whatever, just be reminded of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit's ministry towards you in this moment. Take time, create space, meditate on it. Point it out to your families. Make the bigness of God real in the lives 
the people that you interact with. Second thing, many of us, right, the, the, the promises made here is not a general statement about humanity. Paul is writing comfort towards believers. And this is not a promise made to people who just grew up in a Christian home, or it's not a promise made to people who were born in America. It is promises that are true of those who have received the free gift of salvation from Jesus. And for those who are maybe on the fence about Christ or unsure, or maybe we've been playing the game of like showing up to church, you know, when we can or coming around at Christmas, these promises can be yours in Christ Jesus. What the scripture says is we just receive the gift. You say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And in that moment, all the promises of God made in this passage right here become true to us. It's not promises just for level two Christians or mature Christians. It is promises made to all believers. And it can be yours. Don't let that be, don't let that just slip away into whatever lunch plans we have today. Deal with God this morning. So if you would, let's pray together that we would walk in these truths. Well, Father, I come before you once again. And God, I prayed earlier just that the, the reality of the Advent story would, would just sink in. And I pray just as, as we just think about your comfort and your care and your mindfulness of us as believers that we would just once again be overwhelmed by your kindness towards us. God, your scripture says that you are patient, not wishing anyone to perish. And so I just pray right now that we would just enjoy your character. We would just enjoy the reality of your spirit's ministry. And whatever stressful moment or thing has us enticed or just burdened, I pray, God, that the comfort of your presence with us would sustain us. And so, Father, we know you are good, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.